This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida IFIS Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The aquarium hobby has inspired many, myself included, to careers in public aquaria, science, aquaculture, and or conservation. My guest today, Chris Anglezu, has fused his love of the hobby and science with conservation efforts through his business, CE Fish Essentials, and the nonprofit Freshwater Life Project, which he co-founded and for which he is currently acting chairman of the board. Join us as Chris shares his journey from fish keeper to conservationist and explains how and why he thinks hobbyists can help make a difference. We'll be right back after these messages. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania and Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Chris Inglezu, aquatic researcher, naturalist, and co-founder of the Freshwater Life Project. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me. It's fantastic to be here. So with all my interviews, I like to get a little bit personal and ask some questions uh, about you in the early days. So let's get started with some of those. Can you tell us about young Chris and what were some of the influences early on that made you interested in freshwater wildlife? Well, it's kind of an interesting story, I suppose. My first exposure to any form of aquarium fish really was through my older brother who had an aquarium. He's actually my half-brother, so we didn't live together growing up. But um, every time I used to visit, I would see his aquarium and just be amazed. One time I'd go over and there would be Malawi cichlids. Uh, you know, a, a few months may pass and I remember seeing some uh, piranhas in there and all, all sorts of stuff that he used to keep. This was back in, I suppose, the 90s sometime. But my my first fish of my own actually came from winning a prize at a fun fair, actually, which I uh, suppose I'm, I'm happy about that it kick-started my movement into the aquarium industry and my, my lifelong hobby with fish, but um, probably not the best advertisement, <laughs> uh, really. I actually just won a prize, and, you know, I don't know if you have them over in the U.S., but over here you have sometimes these stalls where uh, they're just hanging up lots and lots of bags with one goldfish inside and so when the guy said to me you know go ahead and choose your prize 
looking at all of these bags of bright orange goldfish, I, I spotted one that was much smaller than the others and more or less just brown in color. So I I've sort of took pity on that one and took it home. And we had a tiny little aquarium for it. It was maybe 30, 40 centimeters, not huge. And I just remember over months and months taking care of this fish. And eventually it turned out to be the most bright yellow goldfish, maybe some type of comet, I assume, with beautiful black fins. And it just uh, amazed me. I just remember thinking, wow, imagine just a little bit of care can turn that tiny little brown thing into this bright golden yellow beauty. And uh, so I was kind of hooked after that. I started to go into the world of tropical fish. And so on. I think I must have been about seven or eight at that time. And I just never really stopped. What were some of your uh, aquariums after that, after you, you got the, uh, the bug from the goldfish? <laughs> well, much later on, I you know, became a teenager. And I, I used to, once I could travel out and about by myself, I, I used to visit the aquarium stores and eventually even got some of my first jobs at different aquarium stores. So I had a bit more access to different species. At one point, I remember having probably about 15 aquariums in my bedroom, <laughs> much to my, well, my parents are very supportive, actually. They, they, they allowed that to go on and, and I appreciate them for that looking back. But um, yeah, I was absolutely obsessed. I used to keep everything you can imagine. I had large tanks with uh, huge cichlids, Oscars, you know, astronautus, angelfish, terephyllum, discus, all sorts, every, everything you can imagine. West African cichlid species or betas. And I remember the first fish I actually bred were Macropodus, actually, Oscillatus, the, uh, the paradise fish. And I was just blown away by the whole bubble nest thing. And yeah, it just, I just kept on being more and more amazed the more it went on and the more species I discovered. And yeah, I was just hooked, really. Oh, that's great. Now, I, I think I had sent you some questions earlier. And I think I, I didn't ask, did that affect kind of your education and what you sort of decided to study as you were going through school? Well, you know, back then, I, I've been told by my parents that, you know, as early as four years old, they were saying to me, you know, what would you like to be when you grow up? I used to apparently ask and say, well, what can I do to work with animals? And, you know, bless my parents, they didn't have a lot of knowledge about what sort of careers were available in that area but they said to me well you could be a vet so till I was about maybe 15 or 16 that's what I wanted to be I wanted to be a vet after gaining some uh, sort of work experience in a few of those uh, vet surgeries I came to realize that in an inner city environment like London you know most of the time they're just cutting off the genitals of cats and dogs and it's, it's not really <laughs> as exciting <laughs> it's really not as exciting as uh, I thought it was going to be and so I was kind of dissuaded and it was only really later on that I come to understand about conservation and all of the different ecology jobs you could do and so on. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't until much later that I came across that sort of thing. Okay. I wanted to touch base a little bit on your company, CE Fish Essentials. I checked the website out. You've got a lot of really interesting information as well as some very cool aquarium products. What is your company's mission? That's an interesting question, actually. Um, it, it's evolved over the years. When I first started this small venture, what was it, 2009, I think? It was really just a sort of place for me to sell fish food. I used to make fish foods at the time. And, you know, we can go on and talk about that shortly. But as it's evolved over the years, I created a blog at one point, And I wanted to share 
my experiences because I'd been traveling to the Amazon, various countries in South America. I eventually went on to travel into the Western Ghats as well, everywhere from the mountains all the way down to the mangroves. And um, that was something I really wanted to share with people. And so I started this blog and started speaking about biotopes and the places I'd seen and the things I'd experienced, as well as the fishes that I'd kept. I'd kept some pretty cool fish, <laughs> some uncommon fish species. You know, the, the Rio Jingu discus fish was one that I had a lot of experience with and the, the true Atabapo Ultim angels. So I wanted to share all of this. And so as time has gone along, it's sort of become a place or, or becoming a place, should I say, because I have a lot more aspirations in that area and it does need a lot more work. But a place where people can find open access info online, it's almost like a bit of a one-stop shop for all things biotope. And it's, it's really an educational platform. Nowadays, I sell aquarium literature relating to biotopes. So you can find some of the most popular biotope Aquarium books available for worldwide shipping by my site. And it's really just a place where people can come and learn as much as possible about how to best recreate nature in their homes or to learn about it and maybe even inspire them enough to go and see it and do something about all the problems out there. I know there's a number of our listeners that understand what a biotope aquarium is. Can you um, summarize that and then, and then walk us through one of your favorite biotope aquariums? Yeah. So I suppose in short, I have a, a slightly different view to most, but not, not in a, uh, any way that anybody would disagree with, I, I, I feel. But the, a, a simple interpretation of a biotope aquarium is essentially trying to recreate a slice of one particular place in the world, uh, some stretch of a river, stream, lake, pool, pond, lagoon, whatever it might be in your home and doing it in such a way that you include only the species, whether they be fishes, amphibians, plant species, terrestrial or aquatic, whatever combination of all of them that come from that one place. So when I was young, I remember trying to dice with this idea as a kid, you know, trying to make it look like I had a, a slice of nature in my home, like I'd literally just cut a little rectangle out of a river. And um, later on, I come to realize about biotoping, it didn't really have an identity at that time. It was just something that myself and probably many others around the world were trying to do. But yeah, that's essentially what it is, just recreating nature in, in the most authentic way you can. And I have a sort of phrase that I always refer to where I say, it's the kindest thing you can do for any fish, especially bearing in mind that most of them come out of their habitats and travel halfway or more around the world. At least the kindest thing you can do is try to recreate their home. So nowadays, biotoping is very much looked at as a way to make an aquarium look correct. But I like to refer to them in their entirety to include the biokinosis, which is the biological community living in that biotope, um, and call them ecosystem aquariums. So this is where I mean my, my view is slightly different, but not one which I think most people would uh, disagree with. And what would be maybe uh, one of your favorite that you've ever put together? Well, oh yeah. So, you know, I have quite a systematic approach to biotope demonstrations or creating biotopes in displays and such. My main goal when I'm doing these things is to try to incite natural behaviors from the fish. It tends to be the case that this happens most times. 
But one that really stands out for me, I always remember because it got such a good feedback from many people, was I did a biotope aquarium based on the Rio Nanay in Peru at a place called Maidenhead Aquatics in Melksham. Maidenhead Aquatics is like a, a chain store, a large aquarium chain store in the UK. Um, and they invited me down to do this display. And I remember specifically, actually, there's an article on my website about this. <laughs> so if anyone's interested, please do go and check it out. I've written in great detail about this. So forgive me if I don't go into all of the detail, but you can learn more there. But there was a particular moment that stood out for me. We managed to use all biotope correct fish species and I used a whole range of botanicals some of which I always try to innovate in these ways. And it is really difficult to always use authentic botanicals because it's hard to say I've got five, six different leaf species from Peru. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really not that easy nowadays to do that sort of thing. But I tried to make substitutions. So for example, in this aquarium, what I did was I used in that region of Peru along the Nanay River, you can find Euterpe palm trees. And over here, very commonly in the sort of garden centers, you can find Phoenix canariensis, which is a, a different species, I think from the Canary Islands, but the leaves look almost identical. So I use those in that display to recreate those Euterpe leaves. But one fruit I actually used, and this was quite interesting because you don't often get fruits used <laughs> in biotope aquariums. But in that region along the Nanai River as well, you find uh, another tree species called Mauritia carana, and it produces fruits that are consumed by many fish species at the right time of year. And over here, again, in the garden centers, you can find a very, very similar palm tree called uh, Chemerops. I think Chemerops humilis is the most common one. And so I was able to find one which had some fruits on it, do a little bit of research just to check their toxicity because <laughs> you don't want to cause any uh, um, unexpected issues for the fish and was able to add one or two of them in and to my absolute joy I was able to observe some of the biotodoma which are like cupid cichlids uh, a common name start to try to feed on them once the aquarium was finished and it was really a highlight uh, for me. Anyway, these type of things are the things that stimulate me to do this type of thing. That the, the thing that makes it my favorite is the behaviors, the natural behaviors that you can um, incite from these fish. And they only do that when they feel at home. That's cool. Yeah, I'm, I really have seen more kind of focus on the appearance, but I really appreciate now what you're saying with the uh, in terms of the behaviors and, and the, uh, the substitutions. That's really a very interesting way of approaching it. I like that. Let's talk about your fish feed since that kind of started it. What is Nature, nature Kind and, and what inspired you to make that? Well, yeah, Nature Kind is a little bit of a become a bit of a side project for me nowadays, but I'm just slowly working on it in the background among the many other things that I'm trying to accomplish. But yeah, as I mentioned earlier, CE Fish Essentials in the beginning was really a website for me to sell fish foods. And the, the way I came into doing that was I was keeping quite a variety of discus species at the time and varieties, you know, domestic bred varieties. And they began to breed and so on. And, I, I, you know, making the food at home can be quite difficult. <laughs> So I said, you know, maybe there's somebody out there that's doing this already that I could just make my life a bit easier 
and buy it from them. So I tried one or two, and there, there was at the time there was one who was really you know the most popular. So I, I bought from that particular seller, and um, I didn't think it was as good as what I had made. So I was a little disappointed. No disrespect to him, I'm sure he did his very best. But I said, okay, well maybe maybe I can just make it myself. I tried to make time, and you know I'll try and make something really great. I figured out the cost; it was really expensive for what it was, and I thought, well maybe to make it worthwhile i could uh, sell some of it you know make it easier for me so i just uh, as i always do i, <laughs> I uh, became a little obsessed and perfectionist and just kept trying to make this formula better and better and better started off selling via ebay and then became really popular on there and had to set up this website so maybe five or six years passed i don't know how many years passed and that was great and i actually became the number one seller of beef heart uh, for discus in the UK. I was supplying to all of the retailers, or many of them, should I say, and um, so on and so on. But as I became more and more conscious of the environment, conservation, I started to change my own lifestyle. I started to realize that I didn't really want to support the beef industry, especially after going to the Amazon and seeing firsthand a lot of the habitat destruction that is taking place over there and the impact on the habitats. So I was exploring ways that I could do a fish food in a better way and a way that was kind. So the name Nature Kind came about, it's, it's multifaceted, I suppose, is partially that it's kind to nature in the best possible way, but also that we are us like-minded people, the, the nature kind of people, if that makes sense. So yeah, nature kind just, I'd been to the Amazon. My purpose was to find out more about what fishes feed on in their habitats, learn about their biotopes, behaviors, and try to make a formula that was second to none, something that could be called the most natural fish food available. And, you know, I traveled to Brazil, traveled to Colombia, traveled to Venezuela, and later on to India and through various European locations, observing and researching fish for various projects, but all the while documenting data on feeding habits and uh, also at home researching, researching papers and research that already existed, talking uh, about uh, gut content analyses and all of these type of things. I devised the formula, well, various times until I was happy, sent them off for research and development trials, uh, nutritional al analyses. And eventually came up with what today is nature kind. I supply to one or two small stores around the UK at the moment. Previously, I've supplied to some stores throughout Europe. The Brexit situation slowed a lot of that down and my sort of conservation work took precedence for a while. So I haven't really pursued that much into Europe for now. But my current aim is to try to scale up the business. The way that the formula is made is not really done. There isn't a fishery that's done in that way. So it's kind of, however you would scale it up, it would need to be a little bit innovative or at least creative. So that's where I am at this moment. Okay. Well, I definitely want to get to discussing the Freshwater Life Project. Let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussion with my guest, Chris Anglezu, aquatic researcher, naturalist, and co-founder of the Freshwater Life Project after these messages from our sponsors. Molly, here's your dinner. <coughs> Zeus, that's not your food. 
Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Chris Anglesu, co-founder of the Freshwater Life Project. So, Chris, I do want to talk about your project now. What was your inspiration for this who worked with you at the beginning to found it? And maybe can you tell us some of the Freshwater Life Project's objectives? My inspiration, it's difficult to pinpoint, really. I, I could find various points going back through my life, where, <laughs> if I really think about it. But the decision to start this organization was really because having seen a lot of the human impacts of habitats I had visited, whether they were in Europe, South America, Asia, wherever, in order to make a tangible impact and to do real measurable work, I had to become credible. And so forming a registered charity was the first step towards doing that. In my mind, a way that I could gain support from local authorities, from community organizations, other NGOs, the public and whoever else to make real impactful changes. So that was the the spark, I suppose. In the beginning, it was an idea of mine that I, I brought together two friends of mine at the time who were working also in different areas of conservation. And we founded the organization officially with the Charities Commission of the UK. And that was in... Well, we, we started our work in about 2015, but a few years have passed, we realized we had to form this organization. And in 2017, we were officially registered. Objectives are, as I said, produce tangible outcomes with measurable impact in freshwater conservation. And our main priorities are to identify freshwater habitats and species most in need where we can have a feasible impact on those places, sometimes even those species are in desperate need. If their habitats don't exist anymore, or there are other red tape issues around legislation and such that are just absolutely not going to change, it's really difficult to take the next step. And so you have to look at what is actually feasible for now, what can be done now. Sometimes in those cases, maybe you need to work with a captive breeding just to have populations you know, in, in captivity. But our approach, I suppose, is to try to restore, protect, conserve natural habitats so that we can have fishes in there, in their natural environments. Number one priority. 
obviously with everything going on, that's that's a, a huge task. So I, I definitely understand the challenges with prioritization. I kind of know there are quite a few folks now that are, you know, working as researchers, board members, et cetera. Uh, can you maybe mention a few just to give us a little bit of the breadth of people interested in this? Yeah, I mean, people-wise, we have a really supportive and credible board of advisors, of which I was very pleased recently to include yourself, or you have a wonderful uh, background, which um, I hope that y- your listeners are aware of. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, other amazing individuals such as Jörg Freyhoff, Brian Zimmerman. There are so many. These these people have worked in institutions, uh, some working with IUCN or, you know, the Freshwater Fish Spe- Specialist Group, for example, or working on red list data assessments for this type of thing. We've got colleagues from the Hellenic Center for Marine Research in Greece, like the Dr. Stamadis Zogaris, who has been instrumental in inspiring me to do my own work. I remember when I was just uh, before the formation of the Freshwater Life Project, I had gone to Cyprus and found that my my paternal heritage is from Cyprus. So I've been going there since I was a child. But it wasn't until I was an adult that I even was aware they had a killifish. (laughs) So I went over there and was, I I went with a friend, uh, Christodoulos Parmasias, and we've been sort of a, a duo since those days, to search these habitats. And having seen the incredible negative human impact on these three remaining habitats in Cyprus, I felt desperate to do something. And the only research that I could find online was that of Dr. Stamadis Sogaris. And he has been championing Cypriot freshwater research for so long now. And I contacted him and said, look, what can I do? How can I help? Is there anything I can do? And to my uh, amazement, really, he he said to me, yeah, of course, I'm so happy that you contacted me. Thank you. And I didn't expect that I was able to help, you know, or or that I would be credible enough to help just being a a regular sort of human being. (laughs) I (laughs) I wasn't attached to any scientific organization or anything like that. I was just somebody interested, a naturalist. He said, you know, we're going over there in whatever month it was. I can't remember. He said, if you can't be there, maybe you could go at another time, take some uh, recordings for me and then send them over. And we're going to compile it all into a greater piece of research on this killifish. So I said, all right, I'm going at a different time to you, but send me some sort of uh, protocols and I'll try my best to stick to them. And he gave me a full on explanation on how to do these things and said, you know, thank you so much. So helpful. And it was the first piece of research that I was involved in, I I collaborated on, and it really, really inspired me. From that point on, I knew that I could be part of that world. And I just never stopped after that and just kept pushing ahead because, because of all the things I'd seen, really. You know, you go to these habitats and you're aware that there's only three habitats on this island for this variant of this fish, of this species. And there's holes being filled in, you know, pools being filled in to erect street lamps or what was there? There was, uh, we found a, a farmer once just digging a channel from his farm all the way into the habitat so that he could send the runoff into the lake. And so this is all uh, agricultural chemicals. There's been just one after the other fires, people just dumping rubbish and burning it. Later on, I found out they, they burn the rubbish to have the, the metal remaining. And then they go and take that to scrap metal places to get money. 
there's just so, so many issues. Yeah, non-native species causing havoc over there as well in some places and displacing the killifish. What's their status right now? Well, in 2015, I had a suspicion that there was, because they, there was only two known populations at the time, and I had a suspicion there was a third one. Just based on browsing satellite maps, the, the habitat looked appropriate. So we decided to go and we found that they were actually there. So we published a piece of research to essentially a, a geographic range extension of the species to say that there's now three populations and we wanted to try to document some of the impacts on those habitats. Later on, I managed to connect with some scientists from Italy who, well, one in particular, Professor Ferruccio Maltagliati, has been working with Afanius fasciatus, the Mediterranean killifish, for the last, well, since the 90s, and specifically the genetics as well. So I said to him, look, I'd really like to investigate the relationship between the Cypriot variant and others in the Mediterranean to see where it sits on the phylogenetic tree. Is it something unique? Is it not? And then also to look at the relationships between the three populations, because they're quite isolated. So to see if they're related closely or are they, you know, could they could even be distinct. So anyway, he said to me, okay, you do the field work, get everything together, take down some conservation notes for the anthropogenic or human impacts, and we'll put them into this uh, genetic research as a part of a, one of his students' uh, master's research. So that was really great because that was in collaboration with the University of Pisa in Italy. The outcome of that research found that the Cypriot killifish is a distinct lineage of that species. So it sits on its own little branch of the phylogenetic tree within the Afanius fasciatus species. And then not only that, the research found that each individual population on Cyprus of the same species are significantly genetically distinct, that they should be treated as independent conservation units. So they shouldn't be mixed. Essentially, they spent too much time apart and have grown significantly different. The paper concluded that they probably qualify for endangered status at the national level. That being said, on IUCN, because of the distribution of the species as a, as a whole across the Mediterranean, they only have a title of least concern. But at the national level, at the local level, those subpopulations essentially are or, or qualified to be endangered. So, yeah, it was amazing that we was able to do this research. That was really interesting. And yeah, I think we were, we're going to talk about some of that as well. So that was good to in include all that together. I wanted to switch gears a little bit. You do a lot of work, you know, locally where you are. And I know one of the projects you have is the Inner City Pond Project. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, certainly. This is a totally different world. It's a, another conservation project, but worlds apart, really. It's the Inner City Pond Project is essentially a way for us to work with local authorities and community groups to establish a network of interconnected ponds, wetlands, and generally sort of wet places for biodiversity in urban environments. So in places where it's heavily built up, like cities, wildlife normally is confined, quite restricted to certain places. And they often, if you have, a, for example, a newt, a newt species. Over here, we have great crested newts among some other types, but those in particular are protected species. 
And in order for them to travel from A to B, they're going to have to go across roads. They have to go across <laughs> all of these places because their habitats are quite limited. So our philosophy was that if we can provide as many as possible little localized habitats, there's a greater chance that they can jump or, or what we call um, wetland hop and survive uh, with a greater percentage chance, I suppose. It's a great way for us to work with local people as well to benefit society. We find, especially during these pandemic times that have just recently passed and, and still continue to some degree, I think many, many people realize that when you have nothing else but a walk outside once a day, nature seems to suddenly become very important again. For many people's mental health and state of mind, um, nature can play a massive, massive role. So for us, it's about helping communities to engage more with nature and see all of the wonderful things about freshwater ecosystems being sort of the, the foundation of most biodiversity and bring people together and at the same time be able to help local authorities to meet their biodiversity targets. So for example, in London, there's a biodiversity action plan that has set out targets for uh, certain timeframes that they want to achieve. And so by doing these small projects where we incorporate ponds and wildlife areas and wildflower patches and so on into one bigger space, we help all of these uh, kind of boxes be ticked. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's become a really great project. We've, you know, made some fantastic friends and uh, achieved some great things for, for local people who are so happy now. I can imagine, I mean, I, I can't imagine but I can at the same time. I mean, definitely critical and important. You know, um, in our school here, uh, just urban kind of wildlife is really important. And I know in Florida, it's kind of similar. You know, they uh, at least not necessarily aquatic, but more ecosystem. They have a uh, interest in you know maintaining these what essentially are wildlife corridors, kind of similar to your you know wetland hop sort of idea. So yeah, just trying to connect as much as possible. So yeah, no, I, I really appreciated hearing about that. And definitely, I think getting as many people engaged as possible is really critical for appreciation of nature, conservation, everything, you know, that we, we are talking about. So with that kind of in mind, I guess I'd, I'm going to skip to, you know, engaging hobbyists. And I, I know we had discussed that you and I previously in terms of how hobbyists can potentially be involved and and help with conservation and education etc can you can you talk a little bit about that yes yeah, so this is i'm kind of going to tie this in with some of our future plans as well if you don't mind Definitely uh, go. we're currently building a project that will connect hobbyist breeders especially those working with threatened species any species on the, the variety of IUCN categories, whether it be vulnerable or endangered, critically endangered, or even extinct in the wild. Many of these species are found only in the basement of some hobbyist breeder and not even in a, a zoo somewhere. And we, we don't know how they come to be in circulation sometimes, but in the end, I don't think that really matters. What matters is that there are some somewhere and someone cares enough to try to preserve them. The main thing is that we try to get a universal system in place where everybody's efforts can be counted towards one final goal. So in the current system, we have a sort of zoological institutions, some of which have conservation programs. 
and they try to take their breathing efforts following very strict protocols and guidelines for disease management and genetic, you know, to prevent genetic bottlenecking or any type of uh, issues around, how do you say it, like uh, trying to avoid the deleterious genes emerging in, in some fish. And then these fish go sometimes to community projects in situ where they can be captive bred. So maybe they'll fly from Vienna Zoo all the way over to Mexico, for example. That's one of our advisors, um, Michael Koch from uh, House de Mears in Vienna, has seen through this project, uh, a similar project from, from A to Z. So his fish have gone from the zoological institution all the way to a community breeding project in Mexico and then back into the wild, which is amazing. And um, we're using his system to try to recreate that elsewhere in a unified way that everybody can follow. What we want to try to do is bridge the gap between the hobbyist breeders and the zoological institutions so that third-party breeders in their basements or wherever they are essentially can have their efforts included into those first phase conservation efforts. And excess fish, even from zoos, could be moved to the hobbyist breeders if necessary, if we have too many, or if there's too little, they can be taken from the hobbyist breeders and put into the zoo programs. So you always have this backup. As I say, there, there needs to be a very strict universal professional protocol in place that these breeders can follow and that the zoo has to be following that same protocol. And if we can do that, it means that those hobbyist fish then qualify, shall we say. You could essentially say that that breeder, hobbyist basement breeder, whatever you want to call them, is then accredited. If they're able, if they're trained and they're, they can demonstrate that they can follow those protocols regularly and consistently, they become accredited. And so they're essentially trusted. Their fish can then be used and it creates what I would describe is a deeper meaning to the work they do. It's essentially putting an extra step into their work that brings empathy and conservation issues right to the forefront. So whereas a lot of hobbyist breeders and, and aquarium clubs will reward hobbyist breeders for breeding as many fish species as possible, and the more fish you've bred, the, the, you know, the more prize you get or the higher little prize you might get. It's, well, actually, that sort of becomes a little bit like collecting. You know, you get um, DJs that are record collectors, you get stamp collectors, you get <laughs> all of these things. It sort of becomes fish collectors. And you lose the meaning in why you do it. So they then change. You say, oh, well, I spent five years on that fish. I'm, I, I got bored. I'm going to do something else now. Whereas if they know that those, that even if it was one fish species, one tank, or maybe it would be two or three, I don't know. But they were just working on that one species. And they know that that fish can go into a zoo and eventually get somewhere back into its habitat. It creates a long-term vision and a deeper meaning, as I say, for, for the work that they do. It will encourage them to to keep doing it. And uh, that's really necessary for these type of programs because, you know, if we don't keep on doing it, then you lose maybe a lot of these guys in the aquarium clubs. And, and sometimes you find couples that do it together. You find some really um, amazing people, but many of them are, are slightly older, maybe retired people. And once those people go, maybe they were the only one keeping that fish. And so you need to provide an incentive for people to be involved and an incentive to keep going. Um, and I think this is the, the crux of this program, like what this is trying to do. 
and we've called it the um, the rare species project. So it's all about reproduction and reintroduction of endangered species. That's why we called it rare. And um, we're slowly building a team at the moment. We're this week going to respond. We put out an ad actually maybe two weeks ago now for a, a role. And we've been absolutely inundated with incredible CVs from all over the world. And so we'll be getting back to everybody in the next week to begin building this team. And I know you, Roy, would be will be supporting us in some elements of the advising of that project. Definitely, definitely. We greatly appreciate. Um, sorry to be so long-winded about it, but it is a bit complex. <laughs> yes, definitely. I really appreciated all the work and everything you and your team and collaborators have put together because I think this has been sort of discussed in many different venues, you know, even here in the U.S. And it sounds like you guys are coming up with a really good, specific way to begin it and manage it, which you know is really critical. So I'm excited. Yeah, we're trying our best to really combine efforts from everybody. We've got a fantastic young lady called Melian Huang, who is also working on a, just a brilliant centralized database for information on breeders all around the world who are working with endangered freshwater species. And one of the main reasons we supported her project was because right now there are many databases <laughs> all around the world, different people trying to do different things. Her vision was to try to pull all of these into one place, take everybody's information and say, this is all of our information together. And here it is. This is what it looks like. And try to extrapolate meaning and uh, create or at least see the patterns in that information so that we can create strategies going forward and connect people, but in a way that's safe as well, because many species come from say one habitat and so they become very desirable so obviously coordinates are a sensitive piece of information we can't just freely give coordinates but we have that in some cases and, and that information is restricted but it helps us to compile data and structure our program and so yeah these accredited breeders can be part of this program but even just if you're breeding this and you haven't or just say you hadn't gone through the accreditation process and you, your fish couldn't participate in the conservation program, you could still register on the database to show your efforts and, and to show us which fish you have, which species, how many, are you breeding them, how many generations, where did they come from, so on and so on, just in case you ever did. If you ever did feel like you could partake in some training to be part of this program. And all of that just goes into forming this greater project. So her, I think... If there is anybody that's interested in this sort of thing now, I do urge you to sign up to her website. I think it's idefs.org. So I-D-E-F-S, I think it's correct, .org. Um, if you are breeding fishes at home, please go check out the database, register and, and have a little look. Um, she's also put on a, a YouTube tutorial on how to use it, just in case anyone is a bit unfamiliar or, so, uh, you know, if it's not their sort of thing. <laughs> No, that sounds great. And yeah, we'll make sure to include that on your um, your guest page as well as when, as soon as I get the websites and YouTube link from you. So yeah, definitely. Well, unfortunately, I mean, we could keep talking for a while, I know, Chris, but unfortunately, we're out of time. I wanted to thank our guest, Chris Anglezu, and our producer, Mark Winner, for making the show possible. Chris, I did mention that I'm going to ask you for any final words of wisdom for our listeners. Do you have anything you want to close with? 
I'm sure I could say many things, to be honest. If you're interested in freshwater conservation, please do reach out to us. We're building projects of all kinds at the moment in various places. Yeah, Freshwater Life Project is the place to go. And yeah, if there's any other thing that tickled your fancy or you found interesting about me, please do feel, do feel free to get in contact. I'll be happy to hear from all of you. Great. Thanks again, Chris, very, very much for joining us. Thank you. Everyone, please be sure to check out Chris's Freshwater Life Project and personal web links, as well as the links of the other folks he had mentioned. These will be found on his aquarium guest page. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and again, be sure to check out the Freshwater Life Project. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.